please turn to Luke chapter 14. In the Blue Church Bibles, that's page 1047. Luke chapter 14. In this chapter, Jesus tells us about the free party that costs you everything. Now, party isn't quite the right word, I know that. The NIV is going to use the word banquet. The problem is, to us, the word banquet makes us think of dining with the ambassador at the palace. It's very formal, with knives and forks of all sizes lined up beside your plate. But that's not really the picture the Bible gives us of eternity with God. Yes, there will be reverence and awe and celebration too. Loud celebration according to the book of Revelation. So the word feast would be an improvement on banquet. We find that in the NIV text as well. But then again, it's not all going to be about eating. So we'll go with party, acknowledging that it's not the perfect word for what we're talking about. And chapter 14 divides into three clear sections. First, we find a lesson in God's party etiquette. Then a story about the party of the angry, gracious master. And finally, a challenge about counting the cost of going to God's free party. So first of all, in verses 1 to 14, a lesson in God's party etiquette. The occasion for this lesson is that Jesus is invited to a dinner party. And he uses the opportunity to teach and to show more about what God's kingdom is like. One writer calls the section we're about to look at seating charts and guest lists in the kingdom. If you've ever helped to plan a wedding, you know all about seating charts and guest lists. Here, Jesus wants us to know how those work in God's kingdom. Verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. God's kingdom is a place of compassion instead of coldness. This incident is very similar to one we looked at last week in chapter 13. Only this time the venue is not the synagogue. It's the home of a Pharisee. And as we've seen before, a dinner party in a home had a whole set of rules of etiquette in Jesus' culture. Rules about ritual washing before you eat. Rules about what you eat. Who you eat with and who you don't. Rules about who gets to sit where. Only honored guests got to sit at the table. Outsiders could come in and listen to the discussion at a party, but they had to sit on the floor around the edges of the room. 
Then as if all that wasn't enough, this dinner party is on the Sabbath. There were a whole lot of extra rules and traditions involved with the Sabbath party. Including the rule that only immediately life-threatening illnesses could be treated on the Sabbath. But Jesus has a different rule book of party etiquette. Jesus sees this man suffering from dropsy. Presumably he was sitting at the side of the room against the wall. Not an honored guest at this party. But Jesus makes him the focus of attention. Today, dropsy is almost an obsolete term. It's not a disease itself. It's a set of symptoms showing that the organs of the body are malfunctioning. The body is retaining too much fluid. And that shows itself in swollen limbs and tissue. I thought about putting a picture up, but it's a little too gruesome for a Sunday morning. Commentators tell us that people with dropsy tended to have insatiable thirst. So much so that dropsy became a label for someone who was greedy in general terms. But clearly this man has obvious physical symptoms. And just as he did with the bent over woman last week, Jesus shifts attention away from the supposedly important people and onto the sick man. No doubt this man's presence was a bit embarrassing to the honored guests. But Jesus is teaching a new kind of party etiquette. It's the etiquette of God's kingdom. Compassion instead of coldness. Jesus challenges the other guests about their coldness, their lack of care. He says you wouldn't leave your child or even your animal to suffer down a well on the Sabbath. So shouldn't this man be pulled out of his well of suffering, even if it is the Sabbath? And on this occasion, the other guests are either too ashamed or too angry to answer him. But Jesus isn't finished. He has more to say about seating charts and guest lists in God's kingdom. Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Whenever someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We think of banquet tables as being long and straight. But in Jesus' day, the table would most likely have been U-shaped. The host's place was in the middle of the U, and the most honored positions were around him. And the etiquette of the day was to try to get one of those places for yourself. But Jesus says in God's kingdom, it's about humility instead of self-exaltation. But here's the thing. In God's kingdom, the honored places are still there. The difference is we're not to fight for them. 
In this little parable, the message is, let others call you to the front. Don't try to elbow or wriggle your own way to the front. And don't seethe with anger if you're never called to the front. One commentator puts it like this. Humility expresses itself in ignoring issues of class or rank. In God's kingdom, our attitude ought to be, I'm privileged to have any seat at the table. I'm blessed to be at this party. I know I don't deserve to be here. I'm thankful to be welcomed at the king's table. Any seat is fine with me. If we have that kind of attitude, then we won't feel the need to fight for position in the church or at work. We won't feel the need to compete with others when it comes to having the best house or car or income or whatever it is. I saw a comedy sketch recently set at a dinner party. One of the guests was a brain surgeon and he was very proud of it. He worked his way around the other guests asking what they did. And each time he would very patronizingly reply, well, that's nice, but... It's hardly brain surgery, is it? Finally, he was introduced to a guest who worked for NASA designing spaceships. You can guess what's coming next. When the NASA guy found out what the brain surgeons did, he said, well, that's nice, but it's hardly rocket science, is it? We all have a bit of that desire for self-exaltation in us, a longing to promote ourselves in front of others. But Jesus says there's no place for that in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a place for humility instead of self-exaltation. Verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is not saying cut off your friends and relatives. He's not saying don't be friends with rich people. No, his point is that God's kingdom is a place for true generosity instead of calculated kindness. He made the same point back in chapter 6. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. So much of the giving that goes on in the world is calculated. The attitude is, if I do this for her now, I can count on her to do that for me later. That kind of giving, though, is not really giving at all. It's an exchange. The mindset is, if you have nothing to offer me, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. But Jesus says, when this life is over, God will repay true generosity. And true generosity doesn't stop to calculate what we'll get back from our kindness in this life. Jesus has given an important lesson in God's party etiquette. 
how seating charts and guest lists work in God's kingdom. He finished that lesson by speaking about the resurrection of the righteous. And that gets a response from one of the other guests in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Maybe this man is just trying to get Jesus onto another topic. Or maybe he's just happy to hear Jesus talk about something he feels confident about. Either way, Jesus has mentioned the resurrection of the righteous. And this man says, oh yes, what a day that's going to be. I'm looking forward to that all right. He assumes that when this life is over, he'll be part of God's eternal feast. After all, he's descended from Abraham. He has nothing to fear at the resurrection of the righteous. He'll be welcomed at God's table, won't he? Jesus responds to this man with a story. The party of the angry, gracious master. Verse 16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. We know from the context that the party here is picturing what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The eternal party that begins when this life and this age are over. The king will return. This world will be wiped clean by the fire of God's judgment. And God's people will live with him in a new heaven and earth. That's what this little parable is looking forward to. That's the great banquet Jesus has in mind here. The first part of the story deals with those who are invited but never end up at the party. And the reason, very simply, is that they have other priorities. The invitation comes to them, but other things are more important. And we could debate how reasonable these excuses are. In verse 18, the first excuse is, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Who would buy a field without seeing it first? What if it's full of rocks? It's like buying a house you've never seen. And again in verse 19, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. That's five pairs of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. That's like buying a car without test driving it. Verse 20, I've just got married so I can't come. 
Since when is being married meant you can't go to a social event? These excuses are lame. But they show very clearly that these people don't consider the master's party important. They have other, greater priorities. And they'll make any excuses, even lame excuses, so they can focus on those other things. Specifically here, possessions and family are more important to them. And verse 21 says, when the master hears the report, he becomes angry. He's not angry because one of his invited guests has bought a field. He's not angry because another bought some oxen. He's not angry because another got married. He's angry because his invited guests see fields and oxen and family as more important than the great banquet he has prepared. Now we need to stop and think about this. We need to think about it because our first reaction might be, if the master in this story is supposed to represent God, what does this say about God? Is he the kind of God who has a fit of temper when things don't go his way? I've just put on a party and you won't come, so I'm going to kick and scream. Is that the picture here? Well, the first thing to say is that this is an illustration. Jesus is not trying to say everything that could be said about God's anger. But when we turn to the rest of Scripture, we discover that God is the one being in the universe who is worthy to be our top priority. He's the one being who is worthy to be worshipped. And we discover that God has a holy, right anger against those who give their worship to other, lesser things. Lesser things that incidentally can never satisfy us anyway. When the Bible speaks about God's anger or wrath, it means his holy, settled hatred of all sin and false worship. Sin and false worship that dishonors him and destroys us. The Bible tells us that when you and I are given over to sin and false worship, then God is our enemy. Theologians have pointed out that as sinners, our biggest problem is God himself. God in his settled, just opposition to our sin. That may not be a popular picture of God, but it's the biblical picture of God. And yet, it's not the whole picture. The Bible also tells us that our greatest enemy has taken action to save us from wrath. Not only to save us, but to lay on a party beyond our wildest dreams. Our greatest enemy has shown us breathtaking love and grace. It's all summed up in one sentence from the book of Romans. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The one who could rightly have crushed us for our sin, crushed his son in our place. On the cross, Jesus was cut off from God's presence. So that you and I could one day enter God's presence. And so here in Jesus' parable, the same verse that mentions the master's anger also shows us his grace. 
Verse 21, go out quickly, he says to his servant, into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the crippled, the blind and the lame. Some have rejected God's invitation, but he doesn't cancel the party. He calls in the undeserving, the least, those who can't repay him. Remember Jesus' point back in verses 12 to 14. God's kingdom is a place for true true generosity instead of calculated kindness. Jesus said in verse 13, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And here, Jesus shows us that his Father in heaven is the God of true generosity. Spiritually speaking, we're all poor, crippled, blind, and lame. None of us deserve a seat at God's party. We only deserve his anger. But when we come to him acknowledging our spiritual poverty, our blindness and lameness, when we come acknowledging our sin and trusting in Jesus as our only hope, then we discover that the gates of heaven are open wide for us. We discover a risen Savior who welcomes us inside. And we meet God not as our enemy, but as our gracious master. The one who paid the greatest price to welcome enemies to his table. And so those who have come to Jesus can sing mystery of mysteries that God would make for me a place within his family, though once his enemy. The judge of every sinner sent Christ to Calvary to prepare a place for me. Jesus' parable offers us great hope. But it also ends on a sobering note. Look again at verse 24. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Here, Jesus has in mind the Jewish people of his day, a nation that was incredibly privileged, yet a nation that in large part missed out. They're represented by these invited guests who made excuses. At this point in time, Jesus is among them. He's inviting them into God's kingdom. But they have other priorities. They would rather insist on their own goodness than admit their sinfulness. They would rather cling to their traditions than welcome the king. And so they will miss out on God's feast. And today, what Jesus said to the Jews applies to all who turn away from God's invitation. Those who allow other things to be more important will not even get a taste of God's banquet. And that brings us to Jesus' final topic in this section. Counting the cost of going to God's free party. In verses 25 to 35. Christians sometimes talk about God's unconditional love. And in one sense, I can see what they're trying to get at. They want to stress that we can never deserve God's love. And that is wonderfully true. Everyone who has ever received God's love has been undeserving of it. God doesn't say, get yourself to a certain standard and I'll love you. 
He doesn't say, shape up and I love you. No, when God's love comes to us, we are always undeserving. We quoted the verse earlier that tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is undeserved. But God's love is not unconditional. God's love comes to us as we are. But it does not allow us to stay as we are. When God pours out his gracious, undeserved love on us, he then requires that we put him first in our lives. He requires that we make him our top priority. He requires that we take Jesus not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord and King, the one we obey, the one we live and die for. God's love is undeserved, always undeserved. But God's love is not unconditional. We could trace this right through the New Testament. And it's a crucial truth for us to get hold of. Too many professing Christians have the idea that once they've prayed a prayer, asking Jesus to save them, then they can live as they like, with whatever priorities they like. But it's not true. God's love comes to us as we are. But it doesn't allow us to stay as we are. God's undeserved love makes demands of us. Strong demands. That's the point Jesus makes in verses 25 to 35. Verse 25 says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build, but he was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Counting the cost of going to God's free party. The entrance to God's eternal feast is free to you and me. We can't earn our way in. That is wonderfully true. And it is also true that when we come to Jesus, when we receive the benefits of his death in our place, then he must become not only our Savior, but also our Lord, our Master. He must become our top priority. When we looked at verses 18 to 20, we noticed the other priorities that kept the invited guests away from the party. 
the new field, the new oxen, and the new spouse. Here Jesus picks up on those examples and he says to the crowds, if you're going to come with me to God's eternal feast, if you're going to enjoy this party that's beyond your wildest dreams, if you're going to truly live, then count the cost. Realize what it's going to mean. It's going to mean new priorities. Salary and career and houses and cars and family cannot come first anymore. Putting Jesus first doesn't earn us a place at God's feast. But when we've been graciously given a place, then we will put him first. That's the demand God's grace makes of us. When we have experienced his undeserved love, we will renounce anything that gets in the way of our love for God. And notice, Jesus is not talking to super disciples here. Verse 25 makes it clear he's talking to the crowds. This is not top-tier discipleship for the very few. It's just discipleship. Normal garden variety. Still, we might find that verse 26 is bothering us. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What are we to make of the word hate here? Well, before we answer that, let's think back a few chapters. In chapter 10, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the message of that section is, love your neighbor as yourself. So we know Jesus insists that we show care and concern for those around us. We call it costly mercy. Showing mercy even to the point of personal sacrifice. Later on in the New Testament, in his first letter to Timothy, Paul says, we put our religion into practice by caring for our family. He says, if we don't provide for our family, we deny the faith and are worse than unbelievers. So when we remember that, we can be sure that the call here to hate family is not a call to neglect them or do harm to them or wish them harm or cut off ties with them. Our family members count among our neighbors. We're to love them with costly mercy. So what does Jesus mean here in verse 26? It's simply a way of insisting in a very striking, unambiguous way that we're to love Jesus more than our family. He is to be our first love. Our primary allegiance is no longer to our family. Our primary loyalty has been redirected. In a similar sermon in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here, Jesus makes the same point in a more striking way. 
In the culture of Jesus' day, a decision to follow Jesus was unlikely to please your family. It would most likely lead to rejection by your family. So if a man or woman treasured acceptance by their family more than they treasured acceptance by Jesus, then they were not ready for the life of a disciple. Those who wanted to follow Jesus had to first count the cost. One commentator says there could be no casual devotion to Jesus in the first century. And as we're learning when we pray for the persecuted church, many Christians today face the same situation. They have to count the cost of committing to Jesus. There's no casual, half-hearted devotion to Jesus in Uzbekistan or Yemen or North Korea. But of course, in our case, we're unlikely to be disowned by our family. It does happen sometimes, even here, but it's very rare. And we can be thankful that it's so rare. But that blessing comes with a great danger for us. The great danger is that if our loyalty to Jesus ever does clash with our loyalty to family, we're unprepared for it. We're taken by surprise, we're caught off guard. But we need to be prepared. We need to know what following Jesus might cost us. If you're a young, unmarried Christian, be aware of this. Following Jesus might mean you have to say no to a relationship you really, really, really want. Jesus says if one of his disciples marries, the person they marry must belong to the Lord. In other words, the other person must be a disciple too. So are you willing to make following Jesus a higher priority than finding a wife or husband? Jesus says, if you're not, you can't be my disciple. Count the cost. In verse 27, Jesus says we must be willing to bear pain and persecution for following him. That's what it meant for Jesus to carry his cross. If we're going to follow him, we have to be ready for the same. And in our case, it's unlikely to mean we're nailed to an actual cross. But we might suffer in plenty of other, smaller ways. We might be made fun of by our teachers for our faith in Jesus. Occasionally, a teacher might just be that unprofessional. And it stings when others laugh at us. It stings when you're older, too. So are we willing for the sting of being laughed at for following Jesus? Are we willing to die to popularity? Are we willing to live as Jesus called us to live at the beginning of the chapter? With compassion instead of coldness? With humility instead of self-exaltation? With true generosity instead of calculated kindness? That's all part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's how he lived and died. Jesus gives two illustrations here of counting the cost. First, a man who started building a tower without counting the cost. 
He went ahead anyway, and the result was a sad spectacle. In the second illustration, the point seems to be a little different. Jesus is saying, consider the cost of not surrendering all to me. Holding out against Jesus is foolish. Like going to war with 10,000 men when your enemy has 20,000. It's much wiser to count the cost of holding out against him and then surrender all to him. He is, after all, the king of kings. And we will one day bow before him, willingly or unwillingly. So it's not only wonderful to follow him, it's wise as well. Again, in verse 33, Jesus says, following me has a cost. The benefits are immeasurable. True life, eternal life and freedom. You're wise if you follow me. But in the short term, the cost is your full allegiance. Turning away from other lesser priorities. He says in verse 33, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This is not a call to sell your house and live in a cardboard box. But it is a call to give up our claim to possessions and position and anything else apart from Jesus. We might not lose everything we have for following Jesus, but we must be prepared to lose everything we have. There's a cops and robbers film from a few years ago about one cop hunting down one thief. They've both had long careers in their fields, one defying the law and the other enforcing it. They're both single-minded in what they do, very similar in many ways. And at one point, the cop and the thief come face to face for a chat. For a few moments, they set aside the fact that one's hunting down the other. And as they talk, they are two men who have sacrificed everything else to do what they do. And the cop says to the other man, how have you survived so long in this? How have you kept going? And the answer comes back, I never have anything I can't walk away from in 30 seconds flat. His point was, I know I'm in a deadly serious business. If I allow myself to be distracted or waylaid, if I allow myself to get too comfortable and attached to possessions and relationships, then I'm not going to survive. I'll be caught. So I never have anything I can't walk away from in 30 seconds flat. Now, in the case of that character, he was breaking the law. He deserved to get caught. But if we can untangle those words from their context in a cops and robbers film, then we are getting close to what Jesus is saying here in verse 33. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Unless we're willing to walk away from our stuff for the sake of following Jesus unless we're willing to lose our job or lose that budding relationship for the sake of following Jesus. 
If we couldn't walk away from those things in 30 seconds flat for the sake of staying true to Jesus, then we're more attached to those things than we are to Jesus. And Jesus says we cannot be his disciple. When we consider following Jesus, the question to consider is not how little can I give him and still be a disciple? The question is, am I willing to give up everything for him? Jesus closes with another illustration. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The point is not whether or not salt really can lose its saltiness. The point is that unsalty salt is useless. Can we even really call it salt? It's like owning a sailor suit when you've never been to sea. Can you seriously be called a sailor? It's like calling yourself a snowboarder when you don't have a snowboard. Likewise, can we be called a Christian if we don't put Christ first? What use is a so-called disciple whose allegiance doesn't lie with the master? In another translation, Jesus' final words read like this. Are you listening to this? Really listening? At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus healed a man with dropsy. We said one of the symptoms of dropsy is an unquenchable thirst. A self-destructive craving for more water. It's self-destructive because pumping more water into a bloated body just makes it worse. We noticed, too, the dropsy came in Jesus' day to be used as a label for greed. In that sense, all of us suffer from spiritual dropsy. We all have a destructive thirst for things that are no good for us, lesser things, the kind of other attachments that cause people to miss out on God's feast. The kind of other loves that hold us back from being true disciples. We all have the same disease. We all have hearts that don't work properly. They lead us to chase the wrong things. They lead us to be half-hearted about the God who heals us and loves us and gives us life. Who of us could stand up this morning and say, I'm a worthy disciple? None of us could say that. But thank God Jesus can heal people like us. Not only can he provide a place for us at God's banquet, he can also heal us of our spiritual dropsy. He can wean us off our thirst for lesser things. And he can give us a thirst for the best thing, for God himself. So as we close our service, let's come and remember his great mercy to us his undeserved love. And let's recommit ourselves to live with Jesus as our first priority. We're going to sing Mystery of Mysteries 
And then, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken.